0: That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you.
1: This episode is brought to you by Hearst Ranch. Grass-fed beef raised on California's Central Coast. Now available online through Larder Meat Company. Learn more at hearstranch.com.
2: Welcome to Feast Your Ears. I'm Harry Rosenbloom and I love to talk with people about what they do and how it influences their personal food stories. This is a show about people, life, and food. If you're just tuning in for the first time, all the previous episodes can be found in the archives at heritageradionetwork.org. I'm thankful for listeners like you and I would love it if you would leave me a review wherever you find this podcast. For those of you with kids at home, I've been working on a new podcast here at Heritage Radio Network. Well, not so new, we're up to 27 episodes. Along with my co-host, Hannah Forden, the program manager at HRN, we've created Time for Lunch, a fun, food-focused show for kids. We'd love it if you'd check it out wherever you get your podcasts. I'd also like to remind listeners that Heritage Radio is a nonprofit, and we need your help to stay on the air. If you enjoy this show and listen to the other great podcasts we produce every week, please find your way to heritageradionetwork.org slash donate to make your gift and become a member today. Today's theme, WTF is going on and what's going to happen next. It can feel like every day there's more and more insane things happening in the world. But then sometimes you just think, what's for lunch? Some people think about lots of things that the rest of us maybe don't spend the time to figure out, like whether or not food memes are real and if they work. Mike Lee is one of those people. He's the co-founder of Alpha Food Labs and the Future Market, where he's working to envision what food retail might look like in 10, 15, or even 20 years. Mike and I spoke last week about a whole variety of things, social media, Losing your sense of taste when you have the coronavirus, cooking at home, being a new dad, and more. It was a fun conversation, and it was great to catch up with Mike on the phone, and I look forward to seeing him in person when it's again safe to do so.
3: This is Mike Lee, uh, co-founder, co-CEO of Alpha Food Labs. Uh, We're an innovation company for food. Um, We're extremely mission-driven, trying to help companies uh, of all shapes and sizes do better for people and planet. Um, Also founded a project called The Future Market, where we kind of do uh, features thinking and scenario planning to think about where the future of food might head uh, in the next five to 25 years. Awesome. And that, of course, is one of the reasons why I invited you on the show
2: today, because uh, if, you know, so many things have changed because of the coronavirus pandemic and food is a really, really, really big one. Um, And so I would love to, you know, to touch on a number of subjects related to that. First of all, I mean, you know, yesterday's big news was the DoorDash IPO. Yeah. You know, an insane evaluation for a company that, you know, on the one hand, and what many people may see as a benefit, you know, makes it really easy to order food to your home and you don't have to go out and go to the grocery store. You don't have to go to the restaurant. So, like, you know, sure, in a pandemic, that seems like a great thing. On the other side of the coin, restaurant owners feel like DoorDash takes a ton of money and doesn't pay the delivery people very well and is basically making money off the backs of small business.
3: Yeah. So, I mean, there's a lot to unpack there, right? I think the biggest thing that I saw, I think that that transcends not, I think it seems this example, but a lot of examples in food is that, you know, to the degree that like, I think everyone kind of sits on the spectrum of um, being more or less mindful about the social impact of the food choices you make, right? You've got one poll where everyone, considers every single thing they do and they're very socially mindful about all their food choices on the other pole you've got people that are like what social impact and then there's everything in between there's this huge bell curve in between what happened was i think that in a time of um something like covid where literally life and death and just fear sunk in everyone slid down one or two rungs of the Maslow's hierarchy of needs Mm. Um, and i think so like you know if you were kind of like on the you know, early edge crust of like being super mindful about your, your food choices and you try to buy local when you can and you try to, you know, do do good things that are good for the good food movement, I think a certain percentage of those people when presented with fear, they kind of said, nope, I just got to like hunker down and keep me and my family safe. So, sure. you know, uh, you know, you saw this in California, right? They, they banned plastic bags for a little while before COVID. And then once COVID hit, they were like, just kidding. Let's cancel that for a second. You know, and I think that to me was sort of a metaphor for I think of how a lot of people thought uh, they shifted. It's not to say that they they don't care about social issues related to food and the impact of that, but I would argue that most people, when push Kim comes to shove, are are going to naturally prioritize their own health and well being over a broader social good, which is maybe a little bit more amorphous, especially in a time like pandemic. and And that's a hard thing to do because you don't want to paint those people as like bad people. Um, right. It's more complex than that. I think they're just like, yeah, you know what? Like, I know DoorDash is, like, kind of gouging a lot of these restaurants, but I have two young kids, and I can't afford to get sick, so I can't afford to go out to grab my food from down the street, you know? Right. I think that's a hard choice a lot of people made. You know, as far as DoorDash goes for that insane valuation, I mean, they obviously benefited really well. And honestly, um, I, I – I, it's partly them and how they set up the system and them realizing that they, they leveraged up so hard that they kind of became this quote unquote necessary evil for a lot of restaurants. But it's also just a bigger issue of like the system is set up to reward those kinds of efficiencies, you know? Sure. Um, you know, so yeah. Um, it's it, it's 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 a lot there, but it, it it is a really just jarring thing to see that insane valuation and the number of millionaires you're going to mint after the IPO happens. Yet there's still, like so many restaurants going out of business and so many people just not even getting any food, you know. Right. So, but yeah, you know this this is a reoccurring trend in America. Honestly, of course, yeah. Unfortunately. I mean, so you know, <clears throat> let's, let's talk a
2: little bit about cooking at home, right? Cooking at mm-hmm. home is something that you and I have obviously connected on, you know in the past and you've mm-hmm. been on heritage radio and talked about your other work and and cooking mm-hmm. at home is something that I've promoted for many many years but it's something that has exploded during the pandemic. Mm-hmm. I think you see people are cooking at home uh you know like exponentially more than they did a year ago. And yeah. I wonder if you think that there's an opportunity there once we're sort of out the other side of the pandemic to a certain extent to turn these people who maybe didn't care about what kind of flour they were using or what kind of beans they were using into the kind of people that, you know, sure, right now they might be ordering it through fresh direct or they might be ordering it from Amazon whole foods, you know, delivered, but is, you know, is there opportunity there to, for those people to be then, uh, touched by the educational side of things to say, Oh, wait a minute, maybe this beef that I'm buying isn't really doing the best.
3: Totally. I think a lot of that stuff I said before for a lot of people, um, I'm sure a lot of people are still just, you know, covering everything in plastic and ordering DoorDash seven days a week. But I think a big percentage of people, um, that was sort of an initial Twitch reaction of, like, the holy shit, COVID, like, you know? Um, But I think, like, as you slowly got out of that, there were, I mean, you, you saw the, you saw Flower, companies running out of flour because, you know, sourdough became the trending topic. Um, And that's a great thing, you know, honestly, because I've always believed that home cooking not only has the obvious benefits of feeding your family, but it starts to uh, build a certain connoisseurship in in your mind about the ingredients you're using. Because I always tell people, like, just try to cook anything. I don't care if you use, like, crappy boxed pasta from a private label and, like, jarred sauce. If you keep doing that day after day, you're eventually gonna start saying like, hmm, what if I upgraded my pasta? Hmm, yep. What if I upgraded my flour? Hey, why is this flour better than that flour? And then like all of a sudden, you know, you're not gonna find yourself standing in a wheat field trying to look at protein levels and falling numbers of flour if you don't just start cooking something, right? Like, yep. I always say like, why, if you don't paint why would you have any opinion on what kind of oil paints to buy? <laughs> sure.
0: <laughs> right? So yeah. so I,
3: I do think that that is the great silver lining of COVID. Like after we got through the initial shock and awe phase, um, people started to dig in and people started to acquire skills. So like wherever you rated your cooking skills on 1 to 10, I think everybody did a plus 1, you know? So right. a lot of people went from 0 to 1, a lot of people went from 9 to 10. And sure. that's awesome. Yeah. And
2: and I wonder if we're going to see, you know, it'll it'll be very interesting to look at like health trends, um, Mm -hmm. you know, and, and I don't mean, you know, just necessarily like metrics like, you know, average weight and things like that. But, you know, there is so <clears> much <throat> evidence that cooking at home more than eating out is more healthy because the yep. food tends to have much less salt, has, you know, often a lot less preservatives. Um, and so I'm interested to see kind of it'd be very interesting to see in the next like 10 to 15 years whether or not there, that does have an effect on things like heart disease. In our generation
3: uh, i can't wait for the 20-year longitudinal study of like the uh, the knock-on effects of covid from the cooking to like what's happening to our children and all the disruptions right now <laughs> yeah, like sure um but yeah I, I, I totally agree i years ago i think uh you know michael Pollan wrote this op-ed in the new york times that i loved he says i have a new diet for america you can eat anything you want you can eat as much as you want you just have to cook it all from scratch <laughs>
2: right and
3: like having having done a giant Argentinian-like style uh, meat fest uh, this Sunday and just the amount of work, which was enjoyable. um, I'm not going to do that every day, you know? (laughs) So it's like, you ever made fried chicken from scratch? It's (laughs) a lot. You're probably not going to do it every single day. Um, Right,
2: right. So, yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. I mean, I, you know, I, I'm one of those people who started baking sourdough. I mean, I've had sourdough starters many times over the years, and I've spoken about it in the last couple of episodes of this podcast, but, you know, for whatever reason, I came to the right rhythm personally in my life to be making sourdough right now, and it's really awesome. You know, I, I make one loaf a week, roughly, um, awesome. and always have fresh bread around, and
3: it's it's super cool. You know, for some that I've talked to, too, I think, like, um, the pandemic and everything, and, you know, between the pandemic and the election, it was very, for a lot of people, there was this, like, not just fear, but, like, this this sense of, like, the world is out of control. Like, I can't control anything. And having something that tangible that you can care and feed and look over and, like, use your hands, it's sort of regaining a little bit of control from your life. And I think that's, like, valuable beyond the cooking skills even and beyond the sustenance. Um, It's just good for your mental health.
2: Um, Would you say the same thing now about becoming a dad?
3: Yeah. Oh my gosh. I mean talking about having
2: <clears throat> having something that you have to like care for and feed. I mean, you're right in the thick I, of oh, it. How how old is? <laughs> yeah.
3: She's uh, she's almost 3 months yeah. old. Uh she was born on September 17. Her name's Aria. And yeah, your world gets really small when you have a kid. Yeah. And uh in in a lot of ways it was really um a nice kind of insulator effect from all the stuff in the outside world because it kind of put a little bit of horse blinders on you, sure. you know. Uh, Like, I I was still stressed out about the election, but I don't think I was as stressed out had I not had a baby, you know? Because I was just like, okay, that was a crazy thing Trump said. Well, hey, I gotta go change this baby right now. (laughs) So I can't really sit here and fume about it, you know? You're like, I'm gonna vote, and it is what it is. So, um, yeah, it's been been great. And ironically... Uh, In in a lot of ways it's scary having a baby during a pandemic in other ways. It's actually there's a lot of silver linings like we're back here uh, With my parents in Michigan. So, you know, she's getting daily time with grandparents. They're getting daily time with her Um, We've just got everybody here on this little like Michigan compound So I don't know if it would have really worked out that way had like we had to all hunker down.
2: Yeah Absolutely. Well, I mean, that's, you know, that's great. And, you know, it' very interesting, you know, to be, uh, you know, as we already p- touched on in 20 years, it'll be so interesting because your daughter will only probably hear stories about what it was like mm-hmm. when we were all here. <clears throat> My kids are 11 and seven. And so they're going to have like yeah. very clear ideas on what things happened during this they're time in period. It. Yeah. So, super, yeah. 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 Um, so you and I, I think last spoke actually probably way back in like April or May and you had the coronavirus, right? Oh, yeah. <laughs> that was fun. Um, early, early on. I mean, you and a couple of other folks who, you know, who, who we all know through the food industry um, had it. And so I wanted to talk a little bit about, you know, like, are you, have you had any ongoing symptoms from it? Um, you know, how, you know, are you, do, are you seeing any long-term effects
3: no, I mean, I, I I feel like very lucky in a sense to, cause I, I got it on my 40th birthday and so did a bunch of other people at my birthday party. Um, <laughs> which was, I mean, birthday. which was
2: right there. Yeah. I mean, that was that, that was that it was
3: literally in
2: March. It was before, March 12th. Yeah, right before yeah. everything closed down.
3: It, it was, it was like just, I remember going out to breakfast that morning and it was just, that was like the first day you go out and it's just kind of eerie and people were like spraying down the counters a lot, you know but there was no restrictions, there's no sure. lockdown. And then the weekend happened. And then like I had this trip planned to California this huge like convention and stuff like that and everything just got canceled within yep. like three hours so that's where it really shut down um i i think i got off easy you know because yeah. i didn't have the fever i didn't have to get hospitalized right. um i i was just kind of really out of it for like six weeks um and uh you know i i and then i got the antibodies afterwards so i think i got off easy so to speak yep. um and so i think it's good but yeah i haven't had anything since i mean um I'm not like using the fact that I have antibodies as like this reason to feel invincible. I'm still using, doing all the right things, but, um, you didn't go to I'd Sturgis. Have, I mean, I did, you know. <laughs> no, <laughs> yeah. I, not this year. Yeah, yeah, no, um, I didn't, um, I'd rather have them than not, you know? Yeah. So, uh, yeah, it's been wild.
2: The most striking wow. symptom that I've heard about, and I remember we spoke about this back in the spring is the loss of taste and smell.
3: Yeah, I had that for the the six weeks or so um, and things have, like, things slowly kind of came back. Um, I don't know if my smell is, like, fully back. I can still smell pretty well, but, like, things don't seem as vivid as they used to. Interesting. Um, So I don't know. That could be a long-term effect. But other than that, like, everything's been normal. I've taken, like... Four tests since then that have all come back negative, so huh. it's good. But yeah, yeah, I don't know. Nobody really knows, honestly. Right. Yeah. I can taste everything. So right.
2: Do you remember I what think, the first thing God, was yeah. that you were able to taste again after losing the sense of taste, or did it come back
3: slowly? Um, uh, like I made a butter chicken, <laughs> and I remember, I remember lacing it with so much spice because I had to, for just to cut through. You know, right. I think there was a period in the tail end of my COVID experience where i everything had an insane amount of like chili pepper in it and fish sauce (laughs) because i needed to turn up the volume really loud on things because like otherwise i couldn't taste it um and i did during it i had this phase or probably for a month where food was actually disgusting to me i don't want to eat anything Hmm. uh everything was just revolting and i think all i could manage the stomach was like just plain white rice for a little bit um but yeah, that wasn't very fun.
2: Do you think that had to do with the disconnect between like, you're looking at a plate of what, you know, something is supposed to taste like and you couldn't <clears> taste it?
3: No, I think it was more just like, just very tangibly like the flu symptoms, mm. the achiness and the loss of appetite sure. and just the, I had like the nausea, you know? And so it's just like, I didn't want to like deal with food, you know? And I just and I was So uh, just lethargic too. It was hard to like, even like get up and cook something.
2: Right. Right. Yeah so uh you know i want to talk about social media um yeah you know as someone who uh you know i have like mostly a hate re- relationship with social media, but of yeah. course I like look <laughs> at it. Um, I, yeah. you know, I'm not super active on it. I do find it to be something that like, I just, I have a hard time like putting my brain towards spending a lot of time working on it. Um, but I have to say that like, you know, I follow you and and I guess, I, you know, I don't know if it's because you have a baby and you're up in the middle of the night with like holding the baby in one hand and your phone in the other. But I feel like for the past, I don't know, five or six weeks, you have been, Reposting this incredible run of uh, TikToks and Instagram stories in your own stories yeah. that have become something that honestly, like, I look forward to every morning. Um, Like when I get up and I'm having my coffee, I like, I'm like, oh, Mike posted more stories. And I look at it and it, it runs the gamut from like, you know, I mean, we're friends. So like I see pictures of your daughter and that's super cute. But the other things that you're reposting, I mean, run the gamut from stuff you're cooking yourself, which is fun to see because I miss cooking with people, Um, you know, but to stuff like, you know, people who are, you know, you know i'm trying to even think like insane kinds of like puri and different kinds of bread coming out of india and yep. there was one this morning of a guy who was like i don't know if he was making fish sauce i imagine it was in thailand or malaysia but he was like you know dismembering fish by like basically just like squeezing everything squeezing out of the fish yeah um, yeah you know yeah. automatic meat slicers and people making these beautiful intricate dumplings by hand uh, like yeah. where does where does the stuff come from and how do you call it all together
3: Well, so you you hit the nail on the head about the uh, holding up a baby all night. Um, I was taking the overnight shift uh, for a long time, so my partner could kind of heal from a C-section, and um, so I would take like the. Uh, midnight to like 6 a.m. shift with with the baby and you know when they're that young you you kind of just like feed them and like you just kind of rock them and they're falling asleep in your arms and and yeah I, I literally just like had the other arm and I was like I need to like entertain myself and stay awake I can't talk to this baby or play with them yet <laughs> right and you so, can't call anybody you know go, else because everybody and else you is call anybody else yeah exactly it's like three in the morning <laughs> so and, and I can't like um uh, make content in the traditional sense (laughs) because it's pitch black dark like what am I going to do like like do a monologue I can't do a podcast with a baby sleeping in my lap right so I would really just like started me just like idly flipping through stuff and then just thinking oh that's neat and I was so tired that I really didn't like think about it and I think it was that whole feed has just become like my culinary id or just mm. like my weird mood board, like my my fever dream of like what I think is just neat or interesting in food. I, there's no like thought to it, premeditated thought. It's literally the litmus test is like, does that amuse me? We yep. post and share, maybe amuses somebody else. And I think by now it's sort of, uh, I've trained the algorithm. Like I think the Instagram algorithm knows what kind of weird shit that I like. Was, yeah. That was my
2: next piece of the (laughs) question was like at this like at this point are you searching or is it coming
3: (laughs) right like literally i i I don't know even know how i would like come up with the search terms to search for that right i think um you know the 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 nerds at Instagram have just figured out like if you like guys squeezing a fish carcass (laughs) out of the skin you're probably gonna like this weird meat slicer from Indonesia right and so yeah I don't know it's it's kind of like I look back on them I like always highlight them like people can see them on Instagram at Mike Lee and um I look back on them sometimes and they're they still entertain me and I I mean the one thing that just is like the thread is like i think most of it is just like various forms of making food all along the spectrum from like handmade to machine made i think they're equally fascinating for different reasons um yeah and so i've always just been fascinated by that and i don't know who knows maybe it'll inspire some weird idea well actually it has actually the argentine thing um really um a lot of asado videos uh, inspired me to like just do one this past sunday so that was great
2: Yeah. I mean, I, I, you know, I look at them and I've, they've run the gamut from like just laughing, you know, like some of them are like, oh, that's funny. And then some of them are like, wow, that's, you know, incredible, you know, that somebody can make dumplings so fast. Or I think that you've posted a couple different videos. I, I believe it's in India where there's one guy kind of like maybe 20 feet away, who's rolling out some kind of dough and then just kind of without even looking, like just throws it to the guy who catches it, who's putting it who's cooking it I assume it's like across a restaurant almost but like the thing it's what you know those kinds of repetitive motion things where it's like these guys have probably been doing this for years every single day the guy just rolls and flips and rolls and flips
3: so I was digging closer into that one because I've seen that in a while and like I was reading some of the comments on some of these things and basically like yeah you're right across the restaurant one guy just has balls of dough and he takes one he slams it down with his little, like, stubby roller and rolls it out and then chucks it across the room, like, probably 25 feet with his other guys, like, waiting by the tandoor or whatever to catch it. And it's so precise. And, like, he does this thing where he bangs the stubby, uh, like, roller on the table and it goes, like, doot, doot. Dude, dude, you hear this whack and people are like, why is he doing that? And he's like, it's, it's a tiny mechanism. It's like a metronome yeah. and it hits, it's his way of signaling to the other guy across the room. Like, okay, when I hit it, you know that I'm gonna throw it like two seconds later. <laughs> right. And I just thought like, that's so cool. Like, that's so cool that like they just invented this system to like, you know, mass produce food, so to speak on that scale. Um, yeah, I just think – I just I mean, to me, that whole, like, system of banging on the thing is the same as an engineer trying to make, like, an automatic knead-slicing machine or, like, the skewer sure. machine where you stick in a tenderloin and it turns into 100 skewers yep. that are thinly sliced. Yeah. Um, that stuff fascinates me
2: yeah and, and I think you know one of the things that I think a lot about in looking at them is the different ways people are preparing food mm-hmm. um, and some of those things come from necessity and some of them are just because people it's, it's how they've come to make them but I mean I love the like you know the 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 spinning cauldrons for cooking stews that then pour out mm-hmm. one end or the people who are cooking like one egg in a like steel ladle
3: Yeah, like that, I look at that stuff and those. I'm like
2: I look at that stuff and I'm like I'm like I could do that I was like, oh man, next time I make a campfire, like I'm just gonna try some of this stuff.
3: Yeah.
2: Uh, you know, stuff and, and
3: like I that yeah, is that legit inspiration? I was like, I'm gonna try that. I've never thought of that.
2: Yeah, totally. I mean, you know, and then I absolutely loved the uh the conversation you had. It was with Ariel Johnson, right, about the uh cooking the shrimp oh on the on the toothpicks and whether or not they're like how much actual energy how many joules you needed and how much you would get out of the toothpicks to cook the shrimp and for those of you listening I like I want to describe this if you haven't seen this it's a video of someone who took maybe a 10 maybe like 100 toothpicks maybe it's like a 10 by 10 like toothpicks stuck in the sand or something the Ariel
3: estimated it was about 20 it
2: was about 20 okay so fewer. yeah. yeah okay so it's like 20 toothpicks that are stuck on end and then they put a raw shrimp on top and light the toothpicks on fire and use that to cook the shrimp like one so, single shrimp.
3: <clears throat> so I I reposted that and to call it a conversation's generous <laughs> because it was just the genius of Ariel Johnson that was really just in, in like infiltrated my inbox and she is a amazing food scientist flavor scientist she started the fermentation program at Nona N- noma not nona that's a Freudian slip um and she's just a genius Uh, at food, but also just a hilarious and wonderful human being, and she unloads this huge message where she literally breaks down, like, uh, I want to calculate how many toothpicks you need to actually cook one single shrimp, and she was like, well, (laughs) shrimp is 70% water content, and, you know, the U18 shrimp weighs this many grams, and the amount of energy and wood, you know, is this the many kilojoules, so you need this many kilojoules, but then open fire is efficiency at, like, 10%, and... Oh my gosh, she like went science on it. And I was just like, I was like beating Ari or something like that. And I caught up on it. I was like, holy shit, this is amazing. <laughs> so it's like, I love, um, I think I said to her like, I love real brain power applied to silly things. <laughs> right? <laughs> Which that was, just awesome. But so the, but the anyway, other cool thing about too. it,
2: yeah. yeah. I mean, the other cool thing about that is is like, the proof is there that like, that wasn't fake. Right. Yeah. Like ultimately what she decided was that like yes, mathematically this works. You can if you need to cook one shrimp and you have one match and twenty five toothpicks, this you can do it.
3: We should like reach we should team up with Ariel and do like a um food meme mythbusters. Just like find oh, all these yeah. weird like food memes and just mythbusters them out. Like that would be awesome. I think that would be um, great. I I love it. So <laughs> anyway, I think she said that uh I think her conclusion was like, um, that's not enough toothpicks. <laughs> yeah, there you go. Interesting. So, I love it.
2: I mean, I, you know, but, but then of course you have to get into the philosophical discussion of like, well, you can eat shrimp raw.
3: So that's true. So what is, what is cooking? Right? So, I mean, and... like,
2: so if all you wanted was a sear on the outside, maybe that's all you wanted with your 20 toothpicks. And maybe you... I was going
3: to follow up with her because I think she had this assumption about the water content of the uh, shrimp and like how, how much energy it takes to raise up the water content, but I don't know if she accounted for the shell, because the shell is kind of a heat shield, so you, you need like an additional boost, I think, to get through that, but sure. anyway, it just right. sent me off in this rabbit hole, <laughs> yeah. and I think... If any of your listeners are still listening is fascinated by this, then like, please help us solve this problem. Let's figure it out.
2: (laughs) Right, right. Well, I mean, maybe we could just have like, the world's largest distributed cooking of single shrimps on toothpicks, we could have choose a day and it could be like, you know, toothpick shrimp cooking day.
3: Yeah, yeah. And everybody can
2: do it and report their results, right? Like ambient air temperature and temperature of the shrimp. I mean, you know, you could could go really far down the rabbit hole with
3: this. We could do like a weird X prize for like useless (laughs) cooking exercises. I think it's great. I think it's great. (laughs) Let's do it.
1: This episode is brought to you by Hearst Ranch. The Hearst family has raised cattle on California's Central Coast since 1865. Today, Hearst Ranch's signature product is their 100% grass-fed, completely hormone and antibiotic-free beef. The Hearst ranches have always treated their animals with great care. Their cattle live a completely natural existence as foragers and grazers. Well-managed grazing fertilizes the land naturally, sustains a seasonal rhythm to the ranches, and produces a remarkable meat whose flavor is the authentic taste of the American West. Hurst Ranch Beef is available seasonally, May through August, in select whole food markets throughout California, and all year round at their retail locations in San Simeon and Paso Robles. And now, HRN listeners in Arizona, Nevada, and California can get Hurst Ranch Beef delivered right to their door through Larder Meat Company. Go to lardermeatco.com and shop the 100% grass-fed box to stock your freezer with Hearst Ranch beef. That's L-A-R-D-E-R, meatco.com. Learn more about the storied history, farming practices, and conservation efforts of Hearst Ranch at hearstranch.com.
2: So you know one of the things, I mean you, you spend a lot of your time before the pandemic and I'm sure even more now, um, thinking about the future and the future of food and, and sort of what that what that could look like, what that might likely look like. Um, and I wanted to talk about what in-person gatherings, you know, are going to look like in the future. And this idea that is one that I keep coming back to lately of having these discussions with people where they're like, I just can't wait for it to go back to normal. And that phrase Mm. back to normal really bothers me because it, I feel like it's a failure of, it's a failure to recognize the way that time and history and and life actually works right Mm -hmm. i mean like you know it would be like me saying oh man i you know i can't wait to get back to when i was 24 and i could be at the bar Mm -hmm. till 4 a.m and then go to work Mm -hmm. at 8 i mean like that's not Mm -hmm. that's not ever going to happen again i'm not going to be able to stay out at a bar till 4 and go to Mm -hmm. work at 8 o'clock down days on end and that's Mm -hmm. okay because that was a period of time
3: yeah um the future of social gatherings. I mean, I I use I think the way I think about it is I use a phrase that I I've borrowed from like um, the the meat world and people that you know you and I both know who who are growing really great responsible meat and it's you know this this saying that like they say well eat less meat but better mm-hmm. you know. Um, don't eat just, like, a weird Tyson chicken, like, in pounds a day. Like, buy, like, you know, a really good, well-raised, like, heirloom or local chicken and just eat them less and and, and, and focus on the quality of it and just be more mindful about that. I think the same thing applies for social gatherings. I think social gatherings going forward are going to be socialized less but better, mm-hmm. you know? Um, you know, I, I think... Um, yeah, I mean, especially because, especially like if you're in like a dense urban area like New York City, so many of the go-to places where you would meet up with kind of like second and third degree friends um, have kind of, are are going to be changed forever. You right. know, um, right. you, you know, I don't I don't know what it's going to be like if ever we're going to be like at a bar where you're standing four deep at the bar. Like, I don't know even if like the law, you know, uh, allows it, like, are people just going to be kind of shell shocked by that? Or are they going to realize that like, you know what, I was standing in that four D bar before, but then I had like a year of like, you know, lockdown. And like, I now prefer just having a beer in my backyard or at a smaller bar with like four of my closest friends, you know, right? so I don't know. Yeah, I think it's I think we're we're all forced to kind of just focus a little bit more. Um and and, and and this goes hand in hand with that kind of leveling up in cooking, right? Because, you know, I, I think COVID I think accelerated a lot of the other trends that we already saw, meaning people were, you know, cooking more at home and entertaining more at home. You know, however long you thought that trend was moving, I think it doubled in speed because of yep. COVID. Yep. Um even like meal kit companies got a like a shot in the arm, you know. Cause yeah, they they were kind of like you know uh, I don't know they were like on the way out, but they right. weren't as popular as they were. Yep. And now it's like, oh yes, give me the meal kits. So. Yep. Yeah. Yeah.
2: Absolutely. Is there any um, food or ingredient that you didn't use a lot of before the pandemic that now is something that has entered your personal sort of canon?
3: Wow, a uh, food ingredient that I didn't use before. Um, well, uh, I became way better at bartending. <laughs> <laughs> nice. I I was like, I've always been pretty adept with food and I, I you know knew what I was doing even if I, even if I didn't know what I was doing. Um, for some reason, like uh, years ago, I decided to study wine a little bit and by no means am I a wine expert, but I was like, okay, not knowing anything about wine, I can't let this happen anymore. So I learned a bunch about wine and I know enough to at least just navigate through a wine lesson most places. Um, kind of the art of kind of mixing cocktails. I like to enjoy cocktails, but I it just was all Greek to me. Mm. And so it's kind of been fun just to like get, take care of this blind spot in my head. Like I've been just oh since... The lockdown happened i was like learning just the foundational like five or six like cocktail formats um and then like i was talking about before like starting to build like a connoisseurship for different things like different bitters and vermouths and stuff like that so um you know while not quote unquote food um i i have a new appreciation for that kind of art form um and it really just hit me and this is so obvious to so many people that have been you know bartending for any meaningful amount of time just the idea that like i would go to death and company and see like you know 400 drinks or whatever in the menu and i would just kind of like naively be like how do you memorize all these how did you make all these up but then i was like no there's like five formats or six formats sure. and i was like oh pattern recognition right and i love that yeah, i yeah, absolutely yeah. love that and like i i i so that's kind of one big thing is like my liquor cabinet expanded quite a bit. Um uh, it's both educational and functional in times of stress and covid, yep. I have to admit, but um yeah, that's probably the biggest thing that um I've uh I've kind of acquired. But yeah, specifically the uh I don't know if I'm pronouncing this right, um uh, the uh um the uh uh, the mess, uh mm. that I add into um my um uh, Negronis and uh boulevardiers is my preferred ingredient and that's my my go-to um vermouth that i love so that's my new thing
2: awesome well i mean on on that recommendation i'll have to go pick some up uh not it's not something that that appears much in uh in my home i don't have any puntevas in my in my home bar but negronis and boulevardiers definitely appear so i'll have to uh i'll take that uh take that recommendation what's uh what's What's coming up in the future for Alpha Food Labs? Um, do you have any, any interesting projects
3: coming up? We we do, actually. Um, we feel very fortunate because um, despite all that's going on in the world, um, we've been really busy at work, and we've been working on some really interesting projects. One that we're kind of halfway through right now is um, we've been working with the country of New Zealand uh, on helping them to understand the state of regenerative agriculture on a global scale. Mm. So that has been really awesome because um, in New Zealand farming and and, and ranching um, is 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 per- so progressive in so many ways. You know, I think like you take one example, looking at the state of grass fed over there. Well, like grass fed pasture raised beef is default there. You know, mm. they don't have any feedlots, um, and you know in America it's the inverse, right? And yeah. so they're very progressive in that ways. <laughs> And so they've always kind of been really agile and kind of looking at kind of emerging conversations and kind of exploring and, you know, regenerative agriculture is interesting because while uh, the techniques that surround it have been around for millennia, cover cropping, making sure your soil's healthy, all of that good stuff, but the conversation about it has kind of been trending in the food world um, for a while now and it's kind of gaining steam um, so it's been really fascinating because through this project and for, for them, we've been able to kind of understand in a bunch of different countries, what's the state of regenerative agriculture right now? Um, what are the roadblocks that are hindering progress from it? What are the opportunities that are are, are out there for people to kind of do better with agriculture? Um, and then we'll be embarking on kind of starting to talk to some regular old consumers to try to explain to them what regenerative agriculture is because it's a very complex topic. Yeah. Um, and so it's hard to distill that down to something that someone can just like stand there at the grocery store shelf and say like, oh, I get it, um, <laughs> but we're gonna try. And I right. think that's kind of an exciting uh, phase of the project for us. So yeah, that's been a very rewarding and very interesting uh, project getting to work with those guys there.
2: Awesome. Um, what do you think about Tom Vilsack coming back to the Department of Agriculture?
3: Yeah. Jeez. Um, <laughs> you know, I, 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 I don't know. I, I think we're – at. I don't – part of me is kind of like I, – I think he's better than small alternatives, but sure. part of me is like there's such a slow logjam of, like, conversation around, like, ag, unfortunately. Yeah. Like, it's it's just so – I, I want to be optimistic and say that we can, like, kind of have one person kind of cure it all, but I think there's an endemic cultural, like, shift that needs to happen, you know? Um, food doesn't ever come up in any of these debates. Like, in, in like, I don't think we heard about food. I think Beto O'Rourke said regenerative agriculture in the primaries, and that was the last time I think we heard about food in right. the whole election. So, I don't know. Part of you know, I'm not a policy guy, but, like, part of me is, like... Um, I don't think policy is the linchpin to kind of curing the food system, but yeah. I think it, there's a lot that it can do to kind of not get in its way, and, and, and reset incentives. Um, I think that's kind of the thing. So, yeah, I mean, I, I, I
2: kind of, I, I kind of wish. You know, I mean, I knew, right, that the Biden administration was not going to be as, like, progressive and earth shattering as I kind of wanted it to yep. be. It would have been great if yep. it was. Um, I mean, I kind of really like the Mother Jones headline, which is Biden picks stale white bread to lead the USDA. There you go. Yeah, <laughs> there
3: you go. Um, yeah. I mean, it's like... fine.
2: You know, he. I think he was fine. I think. He, I mean, he did more. You know, I. Th- I think he did some good stuff, and I don't. Th- you know, I don't think he's gonna. You know, I don't think he's gonna dial things back in in a in a horrible way. But I don't
3: feel like. You know, we're we're
2: not looking at like incredible change. I don't think.
3: Well, and that that kind of brings me to the bigger thought that I have, which is like, does the system even allow for bigger change in that? Like, right. you know, assume you had the most inspirational progressive person you could ever imagine in that position. Um, there's so much friction working against that person, like, you know, like if you, if you, if you like made a a mutant of like Joel Salatin and Dan Barber and like, you know, Michael Pollan and made that the USA secretary, um, how much could you actually change? Because that's a giant machine. <laughs>
0: yeah,
3: it's a huge machine with so many kind of entrenched interests. There's so many people that profit from the way it's working right now that there that is a huge amount of gravity to escape from. Yeah. And that's that's sort of a cynical fact, but it's I think the truth. So that's why, like, I think you know when you hear about Vilsack or Fudge or whoever, I'm kind of like, yeah, that's that's not bad, but like I don't really know where they can take it, you know. Yeah. And that's that's unfortunate. That's unfortunate well i mean you know
2: i i guess the on the the bright side it sounds like the work that you're doing in places like new zealand you know it, it are are really good and it and it sounds like um you know we we have to remember i mean i feel like it's very easy especially now that we're all stuck at home even though we have access to this giant thing called the internet like you know the world is not america And, you know, and and, and there are good things to that and bad things to that. But like, you know, all of that is to say that, like, you know, we're still only one part of the world and of the world economy. and, And so, you know, I think it's it's worth looking for bright spots outside of the United States as well.
3: Well, New Zealand's been really interesting too because I think, um, you know, if you think something's hard to do on a policy standpoint in the United States, um, I'm not saying we're doing any of this, but like there's the potential in New Zealand to like maybe do something faster, right? Mm. We saw how incredibly efficient and fast Jacinda Arden and her her government squashed coronavirus. Right. Like, oh my lord, you know, or you, I remember after the Christchurch shootings, like you got rid of assault rifles in like 31 days or something like <laughs> that, right? Yep. Like, they are like we are the tortoise; they are the hare. Yeah. um Except I don't know if we'll get over the finish line eventually. <laughs> so they are just like, yeah, I'm done. So you know that that's interesting to me is like you know my my dream of dreams would to be like all these aspirations we have maybe on a policy level. How do we find places? And maybe it's New Zealand. Maybe it's other places. How do we find places outside of the U.S. where? there's a more uh, call efficient kind of infrastructure to kind of prove these things out, you know? Because some things like people have fear of the unknown and until you kind of demonstrate what that thing is, um, people don't want to take the effort to remove like the existing infrastructure. So what if we could set up this little like test case of something like regenerative agriculture in other countries? and then we could point to that at least and say like, here's what happens. I think that could be great in accelerating um, the countries that have a more fraught kind of political landscape like you know the United States.
2: Yeah. Um, well, Mike, it has been awesome as always to talk with you today for Feast Your Ears. Um, where, Thank you. Where can people find out more and follow you and alpha food labs and all that stuff
3: yeah alpha food labs at alpha food labs, uh, dot com is our website and then uh you can check out some of those weird instagrams at my instagram which is mike lee l-e-e all one word awesome
2: well thank you very much congratulations uh about aria um and uh you know hope to see you in person for some live fire cooking uh in 2021 you as well thanks harry thanks for listening to feast your today you can follow Mike Lee at Mike Lee on Instagram and learn more about his other work at alphafoodlabs.com. You can find Feast Your Ears as well as lots of other great shows at heritageradionetwork.org on iTunes, Spotify, Pandora, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. Please reach out if you have any questions. You can reach me via email, harry at the And you can follow me on Instagram, at thefoodballer. And I just want to say sayonara to 2020, and I'll talk to you in 2021. Have a great holiday season and a happy new year. Feast Your Ears is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content, subscribe to our newsletter. and to your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Instagram and Twitter at heritage underscore radio.